Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, July 14th. Earlier this year, I had the pleasure of sitting next to the menswear designer Oliver Spencer at a dinner he hosted in London. It's always great to get to know the person behind a brand, 
And that was especially true with Oliver, as he is a great storyteller and he has incredible stories to tell. Most of all, Oliver has done that rare thing. He's built a profitable, independent fashion brand. Small is beautiful. You have to have a certain amount of business turnover to get to these levels, but you don't need hundreds of millions to run a brand. This week on the BOF podcast, I sit down with Oliver to hear his amazing personal journey from a market stall in Portobello Road to running two independent menswear businesses and then having to adapt to post-pandemic lifestyle changes. Here's Oliver Spencer on the BOF podcast. Oliver Spencer, welcome to the BOF podcast. How are you today? Very good. Thank you very much for um, inviting me along. Well, I was so curious to sit down with you again because we met at dinner about a month or so ago. Yeah. And I was so curious and interested to hear your story. I mean, the name Oliver Spencer is a brand that anyone who's a menswear aficionado anywhere in the world really has heard of, but not many people know the story of how it all happened. And I wanted to start today about asking about your early years, you know, and we talked a little bit about art school and your start there. I mean, when you decided to go to art school, like what were you looking to learn? What were you thinking about where your career might take you? Okay, so I'm son of two very dyslexic people. Yeah. Which makes you into one giant dyslexic. So exams were never going to be my forte, but I was always quite good at art, so I could illustrate. And um, I went to art school and thought I'd like, I did foundation for a year and had a great time in Camberwell. And then I thought, okay, it'd be nice to be a painter, so I'll do a painter. But I quickly found out that actually I couldn't make any money and it was going to take me an awfully long time to make some money. So at that period of my life, I started looking for jobs and I would take on lots of different things. But my happy place, this was 1991, 92, was on Portobello Road. And it was on a market stall. So it was really kind of like down and dirty on a Friday morning. And it was just crazy. So paint me a picture of what Portobello Road was like back then. And why was it your happy place? So Portobello Road back then was and this is pre-Notting Hill and pre-Four Weddings and a Funeral and everything else, 91 was a place full of people that were actually traders. It was full of stylists. It was full of antique dealers. It was full of, well, anyone that wanted to get up early in the morning. I mean, you had to be there at sort of five o'clock to get the good things. So it was known that on a, on a Friday or a Saturday morning, if you were going out to buy something for a client, if you were going out to buy something for yourself, you had to get there early because all the good stuff came out early. So it, it was this place that other than sort of Billingsgate Market and Smithfields and New Covent Garden Flower Market, it was a place that was full of life at five o'clock in the morning. And this was in December or in June. Right. And you kind of walk down there. I had to get there for 4.30 in the morning because if you were not a stall holder, you could buy a ticket, which would allow you to have a stall at 4.30 in the morning. And there were only a limited amount of them. And the earlier you got there, the better the stall you got. And then they literally with the stall came a barrow on wheels, this wooden barrow on wheels, and you'd wheel it out, shove it in the middle of your stall. And 
at the time, I was selling secondhand clothing and particularly military clothing. I mean, I was 19, probably nearly 20. I was just meeting incredible people. Like who? Well, stylists from all different walks of life. You'd have people that were coming down doing pop magazines and wanted to dress people up in a a military type of way. You'd have film people. For me, that's who I saw early in the morning. I saw people that were looking for great pieces of clothing. I had the odd individual client that would come down and would be like, oh, my God, I've come here all the way to look at your coats. I, I love these Melton great coats, they were called. They were officers' coats. So you get this whole mix and variety of people coming down there and the place just felt really alive. And it was a very, very special place. And you could make a living from running a stall on Portobello Road at that time? Yeah, you could, yes. In fact, when I opened my shop, my first favourite shop in Piccadilly Arcade, I used to joke to everyone that on a Saturday morning I wasn't going to open this store in Piccadilly Arcade because I'd made so much on Portobello Road. Wow. That was about right. It really was a place where you could strike gold if you got the right thing. I mean, it was just incredible. I I remember I used to also trade a bit in some cufflinks and men's jewellery and stuff like that. Typically, I'd be looking in the back of the papers to see if, I mean, I was young, but I would be looking to see if someone great had died. And if somebody great had died, and I mean by great, I mean like a famous writer or an admiral or somebody you like who would have a really interesting background and therefore have really interesting clothing. And I would write them a letter and I would say, would you be interested in selling any of the clothing? Obviously, you'd wait a bit of time before yeah, writing. No, writing. I was, <laughs> yeah, I gave them a moment. Yeah, <laughs> I gave them a moment, yes. I mean, you did all of these things very, very respectfully. And nine times out of ten, if you got a letter back saying, please come down, of course, that was great. So people were receptive to it, I guess, because their loved ones' clothes, they wanted, in a way, to dispose of them. And this was a very convenient way. Unless they had close ones to give the clothing to, and then you wouldn't hear anything. But this was a really good way of doing it. I mean, A, you got to meet some amazing people when you visited houses. And my gosh, the houses were amazing as well. And um, yeah, I did that for about three or four years. And it was fantastic. It was honestly such a brilliant moment in time because I was going between there and and art school and just kind of like living London as a what I now describe as a kid alt, essentially a child that looked like a man but was just having so much fun. So how do you go from art school and Portobello Road to fashion and like building your own fashion company? Painfully because I wasn't trained in fashion And I didn't really go into fashion. What I went into was textiles to Mm -hmm. start. And um, my lovely dad said to me one morning, I know someone in Suffolk, a guy called David Walters, who makes amazing ecclesiastical fabric. If you like, I'll give him a ring and you can go and have a look. And he gave him a ring and I went up there and had a look. And I went into this huge, great, big, beautiful mill, which was so caught in time and a little dusty. All the, the looms were chattering away. It was just a really a magical place. What does ecclesiastical fabric look like and feel like? 
So ecclesiastical fabric back in the day was silk and lurex, mm -hmm. and it is a cassock that you would see on a bishop. So the big long gowns that we saw at the coronation of our new king are ecclesiastical fabrics. A typical one would be a yellow silk with gold lame crosses. And they're very elaborate. A lot can go wrong when you're weaving them. And they took me into this room and said, look at this. These are fabric rolls with all faults in them. What do you think? If you could do something with it, it's yours. They didn't give it to me. But they said, show us you can do something. So at the time, I remember being really influenced. And I'm sure that quite a lot of the listeners will remember Scott Carolla. Mm -hmm. And Scott was a really big influence to me in the early days. He later became a really good furniture designer. But he was making wonderful clothing for people like Alton John and very interesting stuff. And I'd seen a narrow jacket that Scott had done in an ecclesiastical cloth. And at the time at Portobello Road, I was starting to sell a lot of waistcoats to people. It was a kind of a moment for that. And... I thought to myself, I'm going to go visit one of the factory owners I know and I'm going to borrow a pattern. I'm going to borrow a waistcoat pattern. I'm going to see if I can fit that in between the damage runs on the fabric and see if I can cut a waistcoat out of it. And that's basically how I started. I started using this ecclesiastical fabric to make waistcoats out of. I started sellers on the market stall. At the time, there was a terrible retail recession and an agent approached me in a pub one night, I think, and said, I've seen your waistcoats, they're great. Why don't you just open a store? There's a place called Piccadilly Arcade. The landlord, who was the crown, would probably let you have it free of rent for a year, give it a go. So in my massive naivety and with the jubilance of youth, I bounded around there to have a look and was like, yes, I've got to do this. Right. Oh, my God, did I not realise... Opening a shop is a really big responsibility and is still a really big responsibility today. That's not changed. And I opened my first store in 1992. And is this the company that eventually became known as Favorbrook? Yeah, this is Favorbrook. I was setting up a limited company. I was trying to do all the things. I had a couple of really good people that seemed to want to invest some money into it and get involved. And so we all set about trying to do it. Eventually, we opened the store and we named it Favorbrook. And... Honestly, I can tell you that it was the worst thing I'd ever done. It was impossible to make ends meet out of a store with wages and rent and business rates as they were back then were still an amount. It was all very difficult until one day I had my four weddings in a funeral moment. What happened? Well, we were selling these hand-painted waistcoats mm -hmm. and somebody came in and was like, I want these. In fact, I need quite a lot of the stuff you're doing in the shop for a movie. I can't tell you what it is, but... Who was that person? Mm, I don't know the name of that person. Okay. That was a, a lady stylist. Was it for four weddings and a funeral? And it was all for oh, four wow. weddings and a funeral. So we started doing all the stuff. And I mean, at the time, there were stylists, there were people wardrobing, there were all types of things going on. I mean, the world, it was a very different thing than when you did a movie. You didn't have, say, a bank of machinists that would make all the garments for the film, you would probably go out and source a lot of it, especially as for Weddings was, which was really low budget. And um, that movie came out and suddenly that sparked a massive interest in what we were doing. And I remember ringing my bank manager who was absolutely at my throat. I had about a £30,000 overdraft in 1991. And... Um, 
he'd put me on the no hope list. And I said, go to the movies, watch this film, you'll love it. And tell me what you think. So he was like very curious by this. And I said, well, they were all mined, all of those waistcoats and all of those lovely ties and stuff. And he was like, oh, so what does this mean? I, I, I said, I don't know at the moment, but I think business might change. So how did you translate the presence and visibility of your very unique garments into real business? So that's a very interesting question. I mean, back then, I think a lot of what went on everywhere was word of mouth. We all lived to go to the movies at that stage in life. That was one of the... We didn't have a phone to look at. We didn't have a, an iPad. We went to the movies to disappear for three hours and to escape. And so many people did go and see that film. And so many people asked questions. They were getting married, going to parties, anyone having a celebration... I mean, that was like the penultimate of just like this nostalgic English film that just was so funny and so like dreamy in a way. It was all over the place. And it was Hugh Grant's big moment. It's a brilliant movie. And we should drop a link for anyone who hasn't seen that movie. We should drop a link in the episode notes so you can check it out. Because as someone growing up in Canada at the time, I remember that movie and I remember feeling like it captured this like quirky kind of characters you could only find in a British film and so authentic and real versus the like manufactured Hollywood movies that were around as well. I mean, it could have easily been a one take camera on a wall at real life, a documentary. I mean, it was just so spot on. So it was Real escapism in a very, very English way and just utterly charming and funny and romantic. So word of mouth. I mean, literally, people started translating that into sales of clothing was probably easier than I imagine it would be. So people started just showing up at the store? People started asking questions and somebody came down from the Times and started asking a question. I do remember that. The newspapers were big then. And people started appearing and asking lots of questions about where things came from. I remember one day, because we were still seriously in debt, the Spanish hotel owner came in and he said, he said, I've seen the film. I love this stuff. And he just started buying and buying. And I remember by the end of the day, it was was a really good retail moment. And, And retail, when you're running a shop, is such a beautiful experience. And when you get somebody in who's so infused by what you're doing, it's more of a buzz than anything else I've ever discovered in my life. And at that moment, our business started to work. And now that's 31 years ago and we've got three stores. That business is still absolutely thriving. Really? I I absolutely love it. Yeah, we now hold the warrant for Royal Ascot. So we dress everyone up in their tails and... We've dressed lots and lots of people through the years. You know, we all have these moments in life where you get a lucky break or something. Do you ever wonder what would have happened if you hadn't had that break? You know, you said you struggled a lot through the early years of Favourbrook. What do you make of that break that you got that this woman came into your store and, you know, sourced a bunch of stuff for a low budget film that went on to be a global success? What I make of it is my lucky tipping point. No matter what your idea is and what you're trying to do, you have to have a lot of hard work. You have to have a great idea 
and a lot of determination, but you need a certain amount of luck. And you need to then be able to understand how to use that luck to your advantage. So I think many people overlook situations like that where you do get just that critical moment of luck and you need to be able to take it to its max and roll with what was going on. What happened at that moment? I didn't know what was going on at that moment, but Jeremy Hackett was busy down on the King's Road setting up Hackett. I was doing Favourbrook. And it was all going at the same time. We were all on the same train. Right. And suddenly I started thinking to myself, well, hang on a minute, we're doing a cultural shift here. And this is an absolutely fantastic thing. So it's not just about the luck. It's about what you do with the luck. And I think that's a really important lesson because the hard work that goes into building fashion businesses is often not well understood by people watching from the outside, which brings me to my next question. After you've had the struggle, the perspicacity, the ups and downs, the 30,000 pounds of debt, the bank manager on your case of launching your first fashion business, why did you decide to go out and create another one? It's a really good question, but I think that I started understanding that my customers wanted more from me Mm -hmm. than sort of fancy dress, so to speak, and dressing sartorially to go to parties. And I started thinking a lot more about my roots on Portobello Road, and I started thinking about selling secondhand military clothing. And I started to experiment. I started making corduroy suits. I started hanging them in the shop, and they started selling My business partner, Marina, who's incidentally been my business partner since the word go, she looked at me and said, you've got to do something with this. This is totally different to what we're selling here. So it was working in the shop, but it didn't fit fit, with the Favourbrook brand. It didn't fit with the Favourbrook brand. And she just said to me, we need to do something new. I remember putting together a small range, and I remember my first appointment was with uh, one Mr. David Walker-Smith. David came and looked at it. I remember him looking at me and looking at all the ecclesiastical gold lame embroidered everything in the shop and looking at these corduroy moleskin suits and going, this is not what I expected. Right. (laughs) This is not what I came down here for. I thought you would have a more funky, younger version of Favourbrook. And I was like, oh, hang on. I I got to, David, I got to understand. I knew him, but not so well i got to really understand what you're saying about this. And for the listeners that don't know him, why did his opinion matter so much? Like, who was he? So David back then was a big buyer at Selfridges. And we're now in 2003, by the way. He was a very important buyer at the time. What what he liked counted. Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed getting his opinion, although I didn't want to hear it. But I heard it. And I accepted and tried to educate myself as to where he was coming from. And um, I didn't change in the respect that I didn't go off and do gold lame shirts and things like that. I stuck to what I was trying to do, but it really gave me a very quick education in his commercial world of menswear. And I found that absolutely fascinating. So I'd gone from a business that essentially is very insular and it's still quite insular today. It's a lot of people in a big club looking in on themselves, enjoying wearing fancy clothing, which they might do a dozen times a year to trying to create a label that would become a lifestyle that people I hope would wear every day of their life. 
that was much more of a challenge and something that has occupied me for the last 20 years now. We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts. Specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off-limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. The thing that really caught my attention in terms of the positioning of Oliver Spencer vis-a-vis Favor Brook or vis-a-vis what else is in the market, you said quality needn't mean formality. Casual needn't mean careless. And I think we all kind of take for granted now this idea of 
casual menswear that you could still wear to a formal occasion, that you could still show up in an office. We talk about the casual Fridays, which kind of started in the early 2000s, but which is now kind of expanded into every day in the office. This whole idea of being professional, but feeling casual has also been accelerated by the pandemic and this idea that, you know, we were all working from home and this idea of comfort. Like during the men's shows that just finished recently in Paris and Milan, one of the key themes that came out of it is everyone just wants comfort. And this idea of quality needn't mean formality, casual needn't mean careless is really encapsulated. And this was way back in 2003. This was like a really pioneering idea. I mean, how in the early days did you get people to buy into this concept of a different tone of what menswear could be? I mean, I won't lie in the respect to the fact that Margaret Howe was obviously out there doing her thing at the time and she'd been pretty unwavering and Paul was doing his thing. And I thought to myself, well, I've got a different take on this. You know, why does a beautiful flannel trouser, why does it have to be in a constructed waistband? Why can't we make it in a tracksuit bottom silhouette with a drawstring waistband? The listeners can't see, but I just stood up in my Grace Wales Bonner Adidas track pants with a waistband because I just wanted to wear something comfortable, Yeah. right? But like, this is back 20 years ago when I remember when I was in like the professional world in like 2003, I just moved back to London. I was working in a management consulting firm. There's no way I could wear these into the office, but everything has changed. It's completely changed beyond belief. But just because you're wearing casual doesn't mean to say you're not dressing. Right. And... I think this was my whole point the whole way through. There was huge denim and I was not going to be making denim trousers, but I was going to be making corduroy trousers and I was going to be making cargo pants out of corduroy, which nobody was doing at all at the time. And I was actually going to be making them as a suit as well. So I do that whole thing and, and I like the juxtaposed nature of mixing sport with traditional fabrications. And beautiful quality, just really comfortable, deconstructed, really easy. And I think that at the time that was missing, and it was for a long time very misunderstood, by the way. So I remember some moments I had Martin Gill, who I'm still in business with now, was at the time was one of the bosses at Paul Smith. And I met him in New York and he came and looked at the range and was like, where does this come from? No one's doing this. How do I sell this to everybody? Anyway, six months later, I, we sat down and he left Paul Smith and he came to work with me. Mm. And, and that was a massive changing point. So you bring on a really seasoned yes. partner or executive to work with you. Yes. But building this business, a wholesale driven business with some retail, an independent business in a market with big players, yeah. managing manufacturing. I mean, even with the shifting spirit of menswear that's happened over the past 20 years, you've been building this business, Oliver Spencer, in a market that's more and more complex, more and more competitive, more and more global, the digital revolution. Like, Talk to us a little bit about the biggest challenges you've faced since identifying a market opportunity and figuring out how to stay up with the times and how the industry has changed. So the industry since 2005 has massively changed, as we know, and we've evolved. It is important to evolve, 
but not, I always say that I will have one foot stuck in the past and the rest of my body walking into the future as far as the way the business is run, as far as design is concerned. But essentially, we've stuck to our goals. We've stuck to our initial brief, and that is to be as far as possible artisan, as far as much made in England. If it's not made in England, it's made in Portugal. Brexit's been a moment, I've got to say. That's been incredibly difficult because importing and exporting from Europe has caused problems. Communication has massively changed. What went on in COVID? We don't have a huge e-com team, but my e-com team doubled. When we came back from COVID, we had to get a new office for them. Our e-com business exploded in COVID. I mean, literally, I was like, wow, what is going on? I, because I'd bought all the stock for the shops, but the shops weren't opening. And I bought for the e-com business, but luckily the e-com business was selling all of that stock. And we had to learn how to be really good storytellers. And we had to get our message across to people, not just through a fashion show. And if you like, in a way, fashion shows were good for a moment. And now I believe that our budgets are better spent on our storytelling ability and the communication with the client on an everyday basis, which is what we do now. And that's why actually we're very, very careful over who we wholesale to now because we don't want the wrong message to go out there and the wrong wholesale partner can send the wrong message out there. That's something very serious. I want to build a business within their business and I want to build a customer group. And for a small brand, because we are a small brand and we're always going to stay a small brand, that's such an important thing. That takes me back. I think one of the most important things that we did was to have our offices and our studios all around our stores in central London here. And that whole community feel towards our business is just the most fantastic thing. Uh, you learn a lot from your shopkeepers. I learn a lot from my customers. I mean, I wander through my stores because I'm there all around this business in Lamb's Conduit Street. And I'll walk through and I'll probably be on my way to meet a sock supplier and I'll get stuck with the customer in the shop and the sock supplier's waiting there. Charlotte will call and go, where I am serving customers. Sorry, don't have to wait. Customer comes uh, first. Customer comes first, 100%. So post-COVID, Oliver, how has the menswear market changed? How do you see men dressing? You kind of have this knack for seeing into the future of the market. I'm curious to just understand like where you see things going because more recently we've had this big return to occasion wear and people still want to dress up. What do you think is going to happen going forward? So I think elevation is a really important thing. And during COVID, I sat down actually with the BBC's PM program, Evan Davis. Oh yeah, I love that. And, and, and Evan said to me, um, Marks and Spencers have announced today that they're not going to make suits anymore. What do you think about that? And I just looked at him and I said, well, I'm personally, I'm quite happy about that because I'm certainly going into the suit business. And I really, really went into the suit business because my view of the marketplace was that as soon as we get out of this godforsaken lockdown, we're all going to want to go out and have a great time. Yeah. And that there is no better way 
than having a good time than by elevating your dress yeah. to a different level. People really wanted to start dressing up to go out again. They were dressing out to go to the pub. They were dressing out to go and see granny. They were just, everybody was dressing up. And it was the most fantastic year that first year for selling really, really beautiful clothing. And that really played out. I mean, if I did look in a crystal ball that year, it really came true. And now? Now it's still very good. People are dressing up. People are returning to work. They're returning to the workplace. Like you said, you've got your Wells Bonner on, your very comfy comfies today. People are doing that. If they're in Oliver Spencer, maybe they're wearing our beautiful linen drawstring trousers, which are just so comfortable. And the suit of armour to work, which is what it used to be, the man in the pinstripe grey suit, is long gone. Things have changed. And the major trend to me is that people who didn't know how to dress away from their suit for everyday life have had to learn how to do that. And that is where the major lifestyle trend difference has occurred. And that's why businesses like Cuccinelli have done so well, top-end as Cuccinelli, because they've helped that guy get dressed to work. Well, for the creative industry, that's what we're doing. We're helping them get dressed for work as well. Because one of the negative sides since we've left COVID is that mainstream press have slightly forgotten about menswear. It's gone to the back pages of the papers and it's not being reported on in the same way as it was reported on before we went into lockdown. But do you think that's just because men are getting their fashion knowledge from different places than in newspapers? I mean, on Instagram or they're on different websites or they're following, you know, certain influencers or celebrities who have a sense of style. Like, I feel like people get their fashion inspiration, especially guys. They're looking up to the people out there. You know, we in the early 2000s, we had people like David Beckham and others. But now we have so many people with so many different styles from so many different places, sports, film, music, you know, all of that. That's where people get style inspiration. So I find two things. So we went from being editorially at work on my own website. We went from being free people to, this is just the editorial side of the website, mm -hmm. to eight people. And they are producing constantly content. Yeah, It's about 19,500 people visiting the website a week. Okay, So we're talking to a good amount of people mm -hmm. about what to wear and how to wear it. One of the most important things in my book that's occurred since lockdown is that people have started to return to shops and they've started to see the value of a really good shopkeeper, of proper old-fashioned service in the shop. So they might be on their phone looking at whoever they're looking at for style tips and what to wear and... Pharrell, for instance. But actually, at the end of the day, men become very happy in an environment that they trust, yeah. talking to a person they respect. And that's worked brilliantly. And actually, I feel like shops are having a moment again. And that community around those shops, you know, on Lamb's Conduit Street, we've got Noble Rot, Honey & Co., Le Fromagerie, Aesop. I mean all these great places to go to and people love that community around that. And I think that's fantastic.
So more than 30 years in from your time hawking vintage clothes on Portobello Road, you're still in the business. What keeps you in this business? And what advice do you have for you know the people listening who want a career in fashion or have their own businesses or thinking of starting their businesses about remaining connected to and passionate about their work in fashion for such a long time? Because some people just give up. How have you kept at it for so long? Not with just one business, but two businesses. Yeah, I've actually gone more than that. We've started other businesses. I've got an agency business now. I've invested in athletics businesses and we've got a group of businesses and it's great. I'm fairly addicted to work. My wife would say obsessed. I love it. I love the community I have in my business. They're not a team. I don't like that word. They're a family. They are my family. They're people I share a lot of moments with. And a lot of them will work with me for a long time. And the people that you go to work with on a daily basis really, really matter. And that's why I'm not very big on people working from home in satellite offices. I like the community. And that's that's one thing. I think that my love of the factory floor, so I love to go and look and visit and have lunch, dinner and breakfast with the factory owners, discussing all manners of life. Just being in the factory is an amazing thing. Seeing how the cloth's being woven, seeing how the shirts are being made. And then I like to be on the shop floor serving the customer with that product, see what they're talking about, be interested and learn. So be a sponge learn everything, take everything in. I mean, I have a very visual imagination, which is a great asset. And I also love to learn. And the day I stop wanting to learn is the day that I'll depart and hand over to a younger, better person. I'll probably do that a lot earlier on in any case, because I'm not a believer in staying out. And I'm very blessed because I mentor quite a few people on this type of thing. I talk a lot about the flower and the gardener and this whole concept of you need to have someone that makes money and spends money, but you need to have someone in the middle that controls it all. So if you're a creative, you have to find someone who will run the business. It's not very often that you get someone who can be creative and run a business because they are definitely two things. And even at the beginning, if they think they can do both, as the business grows, they will end up going like that and splitting because you won't be able to do both jobs. So find a good partner. It's the most important thing in life. But within the realms of the business, this is Marina and I have been partners for 31 years. I think it's it's a great thing. And um, she helped you spot the opportunity for Oliver Spencer by yes. just letting her recognize. So if you have someone to bounce ideas off of and like point things out, you know, when you're running a business and everything's happening so fast. Sometimes you need someone who can help you see the bigger picture, right? I think that's so important. And then the other thing, and I was in a meeting two days ago with a brand I'm heavily invested into, and it's doing phenomenally well. It's a brand called Saw Running. He has created an amazing brand, and we're just now getting to the nitty gritty of turning this amazing brand into an amazing business. And we're talking a lot about margin, how margin drives will enable you to have a lot of growth in the future. 
And that is such an important thing as far as the everyday running of your business. It enables you to look after your staff, give them a great place to work and do all the necessary marketing you need to develop a fantastic business. What you don't necessarily need to do is to become massive and huge. Yeah. For me, that's kind of a no-no. I don't like debt. I like to sleep at night, so I don't like debt. I did that 30 years ago. I like to be very manageable. I think the word I like to use is small is beautiful. You have to have a certain amount of business turnover to get to these levels, but you don't need hundreds of millions to run a brand. A profitable brand. That's a very good point. It should be profitable. There was a moment there when a lot of people seemed to be chasing angel money, never thinking, this was something that came out of tech, I'm sure, but thinking they could create brand without ever being profitable and then sell it for a fortune. I mean, I think that's crazy. Yeah. I never understood why people are paying money for those brands. I think that if they can't financially stand on their own, I'm talking about the clothing business, maybe not. I mean, it applies to most businesses, especially right now. I think every, yeah. most of the investors I'm talking to are focused on profitability. I, I have one final question for you, which is a more personal question. And early on in the conversation, you mentioned you were the son of two dyslexic parents. And that dyslexia has been part of your journey as well. I've, you know, we've been talking at BOF more and more about neurodiversity and different kinds of invisible disabilities in the workplace. How have you coped with your dyslexia? Because there's so many ways you have to deal with that every day. This is a business that has like lots of numbers and lots of information. Like, how do you kind of work and succeed while also having a disability? Mathematically. I'm quite good with numbers. So I'm quite good at what I always describe as market stall maths, apples and oranges. I'm quite good at that. So I understand the basics of maths and I can put maths together quite clearly in my head. I couldn't spell my address until I was 18 years old. I struggle with spelling terribly. Those nice people at Apple at one stage or another allowed me to dictate into my iPad and dictate into my phone. That changed a lot for me. Um, In terms of just writing out emails or texts yeah, or I whatever. just dictate into my phone. It's yeah. just fantastic. In the early days, Marina would type all the letters, send the text, send the, no, what was it, a fax machine. Yeah. She would do all of that. So one thing that being dyslexic really, really serves you well for is that you understand how to deal with problems and you understand how to work out a problem in a different way to that of a normal person. And you can see things in a problem that other people can't see. And that's because you spent your entire life having to deal with problems in education because every door was closed to you. You couldn't get an exam. It just didn't happen for you. So you had to make up for it. And problem solving is one of my great abilities, I think. And to see the positives from the problems is, is a good thing. So one of the other things is to be able to read people as well, to be able to truly get a quick understanding for who someone is. And that all comes in the problem solving scenario. So I look at it as being a massive benefit. 
I would never have got to where I was without being dyslexic. And by the way, I'm ADHD. I mean, I can't stand anything out of place on a table. A little I, OCD I, oh, as well. A lot, a lot of OCD. And <laughs> um, I mean, my brain works on four things at the same time. And my bless my kids, I've got three boys. They all have to take this silly pill to get them to concentrate when they're doing an exam because they're all thinking about something else as well. Maybe that's part of what helps you run four or five different businesses yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, it's like uh, you manage to just have a lot of balls in the air and hopefully never hitting the ground. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for sharing your story. I, I'm so glad that we've been able to share this journey with so many people all around the world because I think the idea of building something with real clarity building something that is small but focused and profitable and building something while encountering various challenges along the way is kind of the universal story of the entrepreneur so i'm i'm really grateful thank you for joining us today thank you very much for having me it was great fun the bof podcast is edited and produced by emma clark and eric bria in the bof studio team Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. It's advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.